Well, we're kind of turning the corner in Christmas here. Do you feel it? Do you feel a little shift, that subtle shift to get done with Thanksgiving, done with, and then people start putting, you know, the weekend comes and there's more lights on people's houses, there's more decorations. You kind of feel like maybe I should start listening to Christmas music. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're in the Christmas spirit. I feel like that's, that's kind of where I'm at. But when that begins to happen, you start to notice that a lot of our Christmas celebrations seem a little artificial. You ever, you ever notice how um, you start thinking about who you want to give gifts for and somehow you end up curating your wish list a couple minutes later? How does that happen? Right? I, was, I was trying to think about how to give them a gift and then I end up managing my own wish lists. Or you think about, oh, it'll be so, oh, this, is, this is a great time to reconnect with family. And then you reconnect with family and you're like, I'm so thankful that it's going to be another year till we do this again. It's a, it's a challenging time. You think about you know, all the Christmas movies and all this stuff and the sweet little children who bring Santa back to save us all. And, and you think, oh, the kids, and oh, it's just so great. And then what do you do? You give them toys and you sugar them up and what do they turn into? Right? They're just awful, right? So there's all of these sorts of like little switcheroos that happen at Christmas. And it's kind of hard to maintain the, uh, the Christmas spirit here. Uh, contractually, I'm obligated every time during Advent, at least once, to make reference to Scrooge's, or, uh, uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, either in written or movie form. So this is that uh, here today. You know, in the Christmas Carol, the end of it, right, the whole uh, concluding thing lands on this sentence where Dickens says that of, of Scrooge, that if anyone knew how to keep Christmas, that's a great phrase, isn't it? If anybody knew how to keep Christmas, Ebenezer Scrooge did. Well, that's what we're going to be doing today. We are going to be, through Psalm 51, we are going to learn to keep Christmas well. We're going on a little Christmas carol journey. And like with Scrooge, there are some dark figures that we must encounter along the way. Psalm 51 begins in the, uh, you can see this in the superscription there above verse 1, making reference to the story we talked about last week where King David, he who is supposed to be the shepherd of God's people, he is who's supposed to be guiding the light of God's Word into the world, he turns on a family closest to him, two of his oldest and dearest friends, Uriah and Bathsheba, commits adultery, arranges murder, he deserves a double death penalty, and yet he comes to the Lord and cries out for mercy. Psalm 51 is the fruit of David's guilt and shame that Nathan the prophet stirred up when he confronted him. And so verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Have you ever been so filthy that you felt like you had to take two showers? Have you ever been so filthy you had to take three showers? That's how David feels here. But he brings himself to God. And he, because he has understood through the liturgy and teaching of Israel, through the revelation of God to his people, summed up in the temple worship, that, that mercy is who God is. Remember what he says to Moses? I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. 
And mercy is what God does every year, every year, every year. All the transgressions and sins and iniquities of my people Israel shall be placed on that animal and sent away. As far as the east is from the west. This is who God is. This is what God does. So as we saw last week, that there is an abundant hope for sinners in the abundant mercies of God. Now, this is David's plea, but if you look with me at verse 3, the first word here is for. This is my plea for, because. Let me now explain the basis for why I think I need such abundant mercy and such a thorough washing. Let me explain the basis for my prayer. So 3 to 6 is an explanation of the basis for why David is appealing to God, to the essence of God's character for this extraordinarily thorough cleansing and washing. Now, I just want to walk through these verses very briefly, and then we're going to walk through them less briefly. Look with me at verse 3. Notice the pronouns in verses 3 and 4. What are all the pronouns in verse 3? For I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. So David sees something about himself that he needs God to cleanse. What are all the pronouns in verse 4? For the most part, right? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David sees something about God that compels him to to need to be washed so thoroughly as well. Now look at verses 5 and 6. What do you notice just right away in verses 5 and 6 that they they have in common? The word behold, right? Or in some translations, look. So verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, David goes to a deeper level. He says, I see these truths, but after contemplating these truths, I understand some bigger truths in a way that I never understood them before, all of which brings me back to to ask God to do what I hope His word has been faithful in revealing about himself. So I'm going to go ahead and just put up here this morning what is the the point of this entire passage. That we need to see our sins in light of God's holiness. That's verses 3 and 4. We need to see our sins in light of verse 4, God's holiness, so that we can see God's heart, so we can know God's heart. If I could change the slide, I would say, so we can know God's heart. That's verse 6, in light of verse 5, our sinfulness. So verse 3, David's knowledge of his sins becomes a knowledge, verse 5, of his sinfulness. Reflection on God's holiness in verse 4 becomes a reflection on God's heart. We're going to walk through how that happens and what that means. There's so much, I just got to say this, in my own defense, if you think I'm preaching long, this is a third of the material that I have uh, uh, reflected on and come up with on just these verses. And even as, I, as, as Brian's, uh, who's Jeremiah's reading it, I'm thinking, oh, that, oh, that, I should, well, I'll try not to. What happens and what's going to happen, this is our Christmas carol journey. Our sins are going to look bigger than we like. Right? Think about Scrooge's journey and what is he confronted with? He's got this narrative about himself, Right? The sense of righteousness, the sense that what he's done, he just had to do. And he had to make these decisions to become this person. And, and it's all well and good, and he's right. And then it's exposed. His, as Paul says, it's torn down, my sense of righteousness. Our sins need to look bigger than we like them to look. But in that process, we get to see God's love in a way that 
well, is good. So we're going to take this journey this morning with David into the heart of God, and it starts with verse 3. It starts with knowing our transgressions. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So David asks in verse Yes, in verse 2, for this triple washing of this abundant mercy, because David knows his sins. He, he makes this request for this extraordinary thing because he knows this truth about himself. You know, David is not under the delusion that many of the, us modern people are, which is that we have problems that we could just fix if we had some positive self-talk. Or if we just modified our diet and exercise. Or if we just purchased a book that would help us be a better me. What the Bible is trying to convince us of, uh, alone in, in the entire Barnes and Noble, the Bible is trying to tell us that we are God-made beings with problems that require a God-made salvation. We're God-made beings with a problem that requires a God-made salvation. Have you ever had the unfortunate experience of trying to put a too-small diaper on a too-old child? You, run out, you realize all you have is newborn diapers, and you got a 16-month-old on your hands? Right? This is what all of our solutions to the problems in our life are. We are applying these things. Maybe they look like they fit, but their inadequacies will soon be revealed and it will cause a great disturbance in your life. It will be an unhappy situation. This is why David says, I know my transgressions. That's why, God, I need all this cleansing. And look at what he says next. There's stuff in here that's just extraordinary. My sin is ever before me. Have you had that experience? Your sin is ever before you. Now, this is a metaphor of sight. It's, I, I'm always seeing it. It's a metaphor of obstacle. It's, I got something in my eye. There's something in my way. This is a metaphor of preoccupation. It's on my mind. It's ever before me. In my sight, in my way, on my mind. You ever had that thing in your eye, that sort of lingering shadow? That's what David's saying. I got this thing. I can't. I can't get rid of it. I've got to operate with this still right here. This thing that you're trying not to trip over whenever we make supper in our our little kitchen. Our dog joins us, right? Our little black dog. It's a great metaphor for sin in your life, right? Because every time you step back, what are you stepping on, right? Try not to step on and trip up over this thing. And so what ends up happening with this thing that's now ever before me is I'm living two consciousnesses. My, I fracture. The self fractures. Because I'm paying attention to this and now I'm paying attention to this. And I diverge. I've got this thing that I've always got to manage and I've got this other thing that I'm trying to manage. I've got to manage it, I've got to manage this. And, and, and so what we do is we try to, to numb ourselves to the the unhappiness of this situation, or we construct partitions in our life, well, that's, that's something I just deal with here, and then I turn around and I'm happy here. This is my church face. This is my work face. Or we do this, we construct these partitions, or we just deny reality. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. We suffer. 
we suffer. This is what David's saying. It's, I, can't, I can't shake it. It's always before me. Sin depresses us. Sin has, I didn't look this word up because it just sounds smart and I want to use it, um, psychosomatic effects. Psychos, it, it, it affects us body and soul, spirit, mind, physically, right? Have you ever been sick, sickened? Have you ever been completely preoccupied? Have you ever made mistakes because you were trying to manage this other thing, thinking about this other thing, upset by this other thing, grief, shame, guilt? Now, sin has, uh, has these consequences in our lives, not because religion. Ugh. Religion calls a thing sin and it turns us all into uh, neurotics. No, it's because of what sin is. Sin is a thing that becomes a disabling neurosis. And here's why, verse 4. Because it's against you and you only that I've sinned. Because it's against you and you only, O Lord God, that I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All sin is against God. That's why it's so damaging to us because we need God. If we break and cut off something that in your life you think, I need that thing, what's going to happen to you pretty soon? It's not going to be good. When's the last time you've eaten? Weeks ago. You need, you need that. We need God. Breaking that, removing that, hurting that is going to be hurting and damaging ourselves. Now, this is, a, this is an extraordinary verse. You who are familiar with the Psalms and Scripture have no doubt encountered this verse and thought, uh, you know, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. Well, what about Uriah, Bathsheba? I think you've sinned against a few other people as well, David. What does this mean? I think that this is a poetic summary that best captures the reality of sin and ourselves in relation to God. It's a poetic summary that captures the reality of sin against God. So first of all, we sin against God first. We sin against God first. We harm a lot of people with our sin by what we do that we shouldn't do, by what we should do, but we fail to do. All of that has twisting and damaging effects on the people in our lives. But the first person we injure is God. We like to say, well, ultimately all sin is against God. But what, what David is saying here is, first, all sin is against God. You know, the, the origin of every sin that we do is where? It's right here. It's in my heart. All the sins that I do start in my heart. It starts with me saying, God, I cannot trust you to deliver the good to me that I deserve. So I'm not going to honor your word. I'm not going to obey your command. And all of your gifts and all your blessings, your legacy of love and faithfulness to me mean nothing in this moment. I need to do what I want to do. And you know what, God? Honestly, I'm going to be fine. Before David destroyed Uriah and Bathsheba's lives, he did that in his heart to God. So we sin against God always first. We also sin against God mostly. Our sins are against God first and our sins are against God mostly. You know why that is? Because we are mostly God's. 
Right? God loves us as our maker. People in your life, we belong to people in our lives. We, people in our lives love us, right? Our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, right? They care for us. They're with us. They're involved in our lives. They know us. They want what's best for us, right? So when we do bad things, we hurt them. We belong to them, but mostly we belong to God. He cares for us most. He is most with us. He is most involved in our lives. He, is, he knows us the most, and He wants good for us the most. Nobody is like that anywhere close to the way God is with us. We belong most to God, so all of our sin is mostly against Him. But here's the other, here's the really scary stuff, is they're mostly God's too. They belong to God mostly. You know, you, you do stuff to me, that's one thing, right? I don't like it. But you, you know, you mess with my kids, that's another level, right? That's a, they be, they're, they're mine in a way that even me being mine is different, right? So we're doing this mostly to God, ourselves, and as we affect them, they're mostly God's. So not only, yeah, first, mostly, and yes, ultimately, all of our sin is against God. So David sees, verse 3, he sees his sin. Verse 4, he sees who his sin is against. And then now in verses 5 and 6, he learns a couple lessons. Behold, I've got this lesson. Behold, I've got another lesson. These are the bigger truths beneath those truths. Now let's look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is another verse. This is one of the specters along our journey, right? One of the ghouls that we encounter here. It's not just that I do sins. What is this saying? I am a sinner. Sin is not just something I do, a consequence of my environment. It's something I am. I am a sinner through and through. This is, I think, really where David experiences that, that Galatians 2, 17 moment that Paul describes where my sense of being a right kind of person was torn down. I'm the wrong kind of person. And, and what David is saying here when he says, uh, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin to my mother conceived me, he's saying, nothing happened to make me a sinner. We like to sort of soften the Bible's teaching on sin with, um, with, with modern psychotherapy and say, well, everybody had some sort of trauma and some sort of, who did this to you that you do this to other people? Which is true, sin begets sin begets sin. But David's saying, nothing happened to make me a sinner. You know, we all like to think of ourselves as innocent, good children. And certainly we were more pleasant when we were little. I would probably like the little versions of all of you better than I like you even now, right? You would love little David, man. Little David was, was fantastic, right? We were more pleasant when we were little. We were cuter. Think about, think about what we had going for us in the eyes of our adults. We were cuter. We slept more. We were more easily entertained. So we weren't around as much. When we were around, we were easily distracted. If we weren't distracted, well, doggone it, we were cute. 
Right? And so you can begin to have this sort of fantasy because the people in your life were like, oh, you're good, that I was good. But what happened when somebody took away your doll or your ball or told you no? My wife has worked with uh, three and four-year-olds in school for a couple of years, and uh, she regularly is uh, relating anecdotes to me about how they have already developed sophisticated ways of getting what they want, whether it's pouting or pooping or tantrums or off in the corner with some sharp object just causing destruction, right? Like, it's already there. We are sinners. We don't just do sins. We are sinners, And that makes this last point stand out so much more. That's what we are. What do do sinners deserve? They deserve a hug. (laughs) That's not what they deserve. They deserve punishment. Because those sins hurt people. Every sin you and I do hurts people. It hurts people. It's not okay. It hurts people. And to be so thoroughly soaked and saturated in sin that like a sponge, every flop and roll of our life is leaving a trail of pain. That's us. And now we come to the last verse here. We come to what God wants for us. Friends, God wants something beautiful for us despite how sinful we are. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You know, God gave His laws and commands. Verse 4 mentions how He is justified in His word and blameless in His judgment. He gives us in Scripture these laws and commands. And David's like, well, I'm clearly, I don't measure up. I'm not holy. I'm not good. I'm not righteous. But he's reflecting on those commands. Why does God give us these commands? You know, some people who aren't acquainted with God think that God gives us these commands just because He likes to mess with us. Right? Like, oh, you like playing with that thing? You can't play with that thing anymore! That's a command. Right? And I'm going to punish you if you touch it. We think that's what God's like. Why does God, David's reflecting, now that he has experienced breaking the commands and unleashing tidal waves of pain, now he's saying, hang on, you know what? I think I understand why God has given us these laws and commands, and it's because He loves us. God's law points to God's heart, to the delight of God. You delight in. And notice this. I I don't want to get all Dr. Phil here, but just for, I mean, you see what I'm seeing here? He delights in truth in your inner being. And wants to give you wisdom in your secret heart. Maybe those daytime psychotherapy shows had something talking about the secret heart, the inner being. God wants us to be our true selves without the shadow of sin attached. He wants us to be just us, without the shadow along for the ride. He wants us to be true selves. You know, and I just want to, I want to differentiate what God wants for just a second because I'm not talking Dr. Phil and I'm not talking how self-help section of Barnes & Noble because what do you want for yourself? And what do your family and friends want for yourself? 
right? I want to be my true self. And you know what my true self is in my mind? Dwayne Johnson, right? I'm going to be much more like Dwayne Johnson. You know what my true self is like in my family's mind? Dwayne Johnson, right? They're thinking, why don't you be like your true self? Get over there and be like that. And it's always something else, right? That's, hang on, only God knows. Only God actually knows the self that he made us as. And therefore, the self that he made us to be. And what I want for myself and what other people want for me is complicated, isn't it? By well, my father's example, or my grandfather's example, or this great uncle who served in the military, or these people that are on the cover of magazines. Or, right, it's complicated. But only God actually knows what he made me as. Only He truly delights in us being us. You know, again, back to the idea of God. What, what is God all about? Like so many of us still can't shake the idea that God is all about smacking the back of our hands like some, some giant cosmic bearded nun. God wants to teach us wisdom in our secret heart. He wants to bring us into, I don't know how else to talk about, wholeness. He wants to unite our hearts within us. He wants to align us so that all of our energies and gifts and focus are in service to Him and to others. He wants us to walk in step with the delight of the one true God. Whereas Paul says it a thousand years later, to keep in step with the Spirit of God. This is what God wants. And God's heart for us is especially significant when we see it in light of our sinfulness. Hey, I asked this last week. Let me ask it again. Is this who, is this who you know God to be? Is this who you know God to be? We need to see our sins in light of God's holiness so that we can know God's heart in the light of our sinfulness. And understanding the depth of our sinfulness can slingshot us to see the height of God's love for us. And so this is how Psalm 51 teaches us to keep Christmas well. Confession plus contemplation equals celebration. Confession with contemplation becomes celebration. Right, so Christmas is ostensibly, it's supposed to be, a celebration of God and, and of His mercies. But it's hard to just gin that up out of nothing, right? You finish balancing the checkbook, you finish putting away the dishes, you finish vacuuming, and you look, thanks God for all your mercies, right? It's just hard to just create these things out of nothing. But we, we're not supposed to. We're supposed to through this this pathway, this process. That celebration begins in verse four, when, or verse three, when Paul says, "I know my transgressions and my sins ever before me." The size of our celebration is limited to, by the seriousness of our confession. The size of our celebration is limited by the seriousness of our confession. That should be a slide. It's not. I'm sorry. The size of our 
celebration, limited by the seriousness of our confession. Now, when we talk about confessing sins, we get into a little bit of dicey territory for some Christians. I want you to understand something. That forgiveness for you and me does not ever depend on how good, of a, how good and complete and regular of a confession of sin we make. That's not a, a work that we do to somehow modify how many of our sins are, are taken away. Jesus did all that, right? Come on. Jesus, that's what we're here for. Jesus did all that. So we don't have to play the game. We don't have to keep a, a monitoring that. And yet at the same time, our joy in Jesus rises by thorough, sincere confession. Remember when Jesus gets a, he's out enjoying a nice meal with some rich friends and this lady breaks in and ends up washing his feet with her hair and there's a big kind of stink about it, right? And Jesus says, well, listen, the one who's forgiven much loves much. You know, the, the question of confession isn't like, uh, do you need to do it in order to feel good with God? It's about, hey man, do you get it? Do you get who you are and where you are and what God's done for you and what He wants to do? Like, this is where we start. And then confession becomes celebration through contemplation. So we don't like to do confession, right? Confession is sort of unhappy and everybody, as soon as, like, if we go to communion, I say, well, let's confess our sins. Everybody's going, rrr, rrr, I don't want That's just because we stop short of the good stuff. Our scripture doesn't want us to stop short. It wants us to get, to, get into the party already. Right? So confess your sins, but then contemplation is confessing things about God, about Jesus, about what He has done for us. And there, is, there can be no joy without this step. And as we see God's loving heart in light of our sinfulness, right, that's the thing that puts the Christmas spirit in you. Seeing God's love in light of your sinfulness puts you in the Christmas spirit. So Psalm 51, it encourages us as we, as we now turn here to think about the Lord's table. Psalm 51 leads us into this. It encourages us to, to make a full and complete confession of our sins, to confess our sins and our sinfulness, and then to contemplate the heart of God in Christ. And by doing this, then our joy may be full and we may learn to keep Christmas well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Even though it's hard and even though we are confronted with the truth about things in our life that are not necessarily truths we enjoy considering. But we need to consider the truth, all the truth. So Lord, we, we confess that we have sinned and are sinners. Lord, we are here to confess this, but we are also here to confess that you are a God whose steadfast love is infinite whose mercies are always more than, always greater than, and that you have done in Jesus fully, finally, and forever everything that we sinners need. 
And so, Spirit, would you take these truths and would you stir our hearts with them this morning? Would you, where we need some things torn down, would you work there? But then turn us to Jesus and help us to celebrate Him. In His name we pray. Amen.